Good morning, Cornerstone. Thank you, praise team, for that worship this morning. Nothing better than being with the saints and praising God together in spirit and in truth. I want to get right into the message today. I'm going to probably go a little over today, but forgive me in advance if I do. I want to start by saying this morning that how you, how you perceive yourself determines how you view and how you treat other people. How you view yourself is how you will view and treat other people. Every kind of violence, every form of hatred or bitterness, every sort of rebellion can be traced back to this same cause, personal insecurity born of an inaccurate self-perception. It was their poor self-perception that caused Adam and Eve to fall in the Garden of Eden. Poor self-perception. It was personal insecurity that caused Saul to disobey the prophet of God and to try to appease his army. It was poor self-perception that caused Nahum in the book of Esther to seek to annihilate all of the Jews, all because Mordecai would not bow to him. Poor self-perception. And all of humanity is plagued by this same vicious mentality. broken perception of our own selves. And, and, and this mentality manifests itself in our lives in one of two ways. Either we hate and we condemn ourselves to the point that we are afraid to be open to others, or we overestimate ourselves and we see ourselves as being bigger and better, stronger and wiser than everyone else. And while the self-confident person may look different than the person who is fearful, both of them are driven, irritated, and motivated by the same interior suspicion, personal insecurity. The fear that they do not measure up, the fear that they are unworthy and unwelcome. You know people like this. It's the friend of yours who always has to know everything about everything. He's insecure. It's the colleague who never speaks up in meetings because she's so shy, personal insecure. It's the aging athlete who refuses to retire until he gets just one more ring, personal insecurity. It's the filthy rich man who would rather die than not make another million dollars. Personal insecurity. It's you. It's me. 
driven by personal insecurity that causes us to become either a doormat for others or a slave master over others. To become either too passive or to become the bully. Personal insecurity. And for the believer, for the follower of Jesus Christ, this personal insecurity, which is a natural human characteristic, we all have some insecurity. For the believer, this attitude too often bleeds over into our spiritual lives and it affects all of our relationships. And our personal insecurity that tells us that we are lacking becomes a spiritual insecurity. And it hampers our ability to love our neighbor. As I have been reflecting on the book of Romans, I have been asking one and the same simple question. Why did the Holy Spirit have Paul write this book to the people in Rome? Why did the Holy Spirit have Paul cover these specific theological topics that are contained in the book? Because it seems to me that the book of Romans didn't really have to be addressed to any one particular church. It could have been written as a general theological work that is addressed to the entire church. And of course, the book is addressed to the entire church. But the content of the book of Romans has its primary audience as the people of the church at Rome. And as I have read and reread this book, it appears to me that the malady Paul the Apostle is seeking to address is the illness of personal insecurity. In chapter one, he makes it clear that they are loved and that God's will for them is grace and peace. In chapter two, Paul emphasizes to them that God is not partial, that God views all of us the same, whether Jew or Gentile, whether bond or free. He seeks to reassure them. In chapter 3, Paul seeks to convince them that we are all unrighteous, guilty before God, that none of us are worthy or deserving of special treatment. And therefore, they are no different. They are no better. They are no worse than anyone else. In chapter 4, Paul reminds them that there is no need to strive to be the best because we're not saved by our works. We're not saved by our skill or by our heritage, but salvation is from the Lord and salvation is free. In chapter 5, Paul reassures them that they have peace with God through Jesus Christ. And God's peace has, given to them, has been given to them freely and there is no need to strive. They're already accepted in the beloved. In chapter 6, Paul encourages them that they are no longer second-class citizens bound by sin, but sin no longer has dominion over them. They are not victors. They are now more than conquerors through him who has loved us. In chapter 7, Paul makes it clear that while we have not yet been totally delivered from this body of death, we are free by faith in Jesus Christ. And there is nothing that can bind us, no sin that can afflict us, nothing that can keep us down. In chapter 8, Paul reemphasized that we have been set free in Jesus Christ. We have victory through Jesus Christ. 
that nothing and no one can separate us from the love of God and that we overwhelmingly conquer anything that rises up against us. Isn't that encouraging? And after spending so much time in the book, helping the Gentiles revive a more healthy sense of themselves, in chapter 9, Paul turns back around to Israel to reassure them that even though God has enlarged his tent, even though God has accepted the Gentiles, God has not forgotten about them. They too have reason to feel confident before In chapter 10, Paul gives us the tools by which we are to spread this good news to the world. That God, our God, is no respecter of persons, and anyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. <laughs> in chapter 11, Paul reminds us that while the Gentiles do have reason to feel secure in Christ, they have no ground to think themselves better than the Jews. God loves us all the same. God reigns on the just as well as the unjust. No one has reason to think themselves better. No one has reason to view themselves as lesser. But in the eyes of God, we are all of inestimable value. There is no reason for any one of us to feel insecure. This book of Romans is indeed a theological masterpiece. It teaches us a lot about the acts of God. It teaches us a lot about the mind of God and the goodness of God. But the book of Romans is also an anthropological masterpiece. It teaches us and it tells us who we are to God. I searched and I searched all I could, but I could not find any theology of the self. Have you ever read a theology of the self? There is no positive doctrine of the self. But if there were, I am sure that the book of Romans would be at the center of that doctrine because Romans teaches us a lot about ourselves as God sees us. And now, Paul has, now that Paul has shown us plainly how God views each one of us, in chapter 12, verse 3, he gives us this interesting command. After telling us all of this from chapter 1 to chapter 11, he turns around and says to us, do not think more highly of yourself than you ought to think, but think so as to have sound judgment. An interesting thing for us to note here is that God actually cares about how you perceive yourself. Have you ever thought about that? God cares about how you perceive yourself, about how you think of yourself. And now that Paul has given us the tools and the information regarding our nature and our value to God, Paul summons us to come to view ourselves the way that God sees us. Paul calls us to discard our personal opinions and attitudes of insecurity about ourselves and to accept God's perception as the only true perspective as it pertains to our inherent value. And it is only after Paul has bolstered our self-confidence, or better said, after Paul has bolstered our confidence in God's estimation of our value. That Paul now turns to give us instruction as to how we are to relate 
to one another. And as a side note, as a side note, any and every great theological work always ends with the same question. How now shall we live? In light of all we've come to understand about God, how are we to respond both to God and to one another? Contemporary theologians would, be, would do well to remember this. Any theology that does not conclude with application is a partial theology. Our teaching and our learning and our thinking about God is not for the purpose of attaining more knowledge, but so that we can consider the real life implications of the truths set forth in the scripture and apply those implications to our actual lives. And so in verse nine then, Paul begins to provide the application to all of the theological gems from chapter one to chapter 11. In verse nine of chapter 12, Paul begins to give us some application. He exhorts us that our love should be free of hypocrisy, without ulterior motive because we have nothing to gain and we have nothing to defend. We have no need to wear a mask. We have no need for hypocrisy because we have nothing to fear. Therefore, we can love freely and genuinely without pretense. We can be devoted to one another because we have no need to be self-interested. God cares for us and all things work together for our good. And we can spend our time lavishing honor on others because we already have the honor of being called the children of God and there is no power that can separate us from his love. <laughs> we can put forth our best effort. We can be on fire for God. That's verse 11 of chapter 12 because God has done such great things for us. We can rejoice in the hope that God will always deliver us. We can be patient during the dark days of our lives because we understand that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed in us. And we can be generous to the saints because we believe all things work together for our good and all things belong to us. We are joint heirs with Jesus Christ. God has opened himself to us, and, and because God has opened himself to us, Paul says in verse 13 that we are to be always practicing hospitality. We are to be always striving with intense effort to receive the stranger. That's what he means by hospitality here. He's not talking about being hospitable to the saints. He's already covered that. We are to be devoted to one another. We are to have brotherly love for one another. Now he's talking about the stranger. How we receive unbelievers, how we receive those who are not like us. We are to strive toward being open to and hospitable toward those who are outside. The stranger. <coughs> Why does Paul tell us to strive toward hospitality instead of just telling us to be hospitable? He says strive toward hospitality. Because being or becoming open to strangers is not an easy thing to do. 
It takes work and it takes practice to sustain an open posture to all people. Because we are naturally insecure. Most of us are naturally apprehensive towards strangers. When I was in school in the third grade, they came to our school, the police came to our school, they taught us about stranger danger. They taught us to be afraid of strangers, be afraid of people who seem out of place, who don't seem like us, who don't seem to fit in. Stranger danger, they called it. All of us are naturally insecure, apprehensive of people who are different than ourselves. We become defensive around strangers. Proof of that, I was at the gas station about a week ago. I was sitting in my, in my, in my bus, gassing up. And a man stopped his car in front of my bus and got out of his car and started walking toward me and immediately I felt apprehensive. What is he, what is he doing? What does he want? And he walked up to my van and I'm sitting looking at him thinking, okay, what's going on right now? What's gonna happen? And he said, hey, how you doing? Can I get a job with this company? I saw, oh, man, I'm judging the man. He's just getting out of his car. But he's a stranger. I don't know who he is. I don't know what his intentions are. I closed up. I clammed up. Naturally, apprehensive. Paul says you need to practice not being apprehensive. You need to practice being open to the stranger. Because there was a time when you were a stranger to God. And in Romans chapter 9, 25, Paul reminds us of God's words to Hosea. He says, God said, I will call those who were not my people, my people. I will call her who was not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called the sons of the living God. God accepted me when I was a stranger. Engaging people with whom I have nothing in common is hard, especially if you're insecure. Most humans and most of us are suspicious by nature or by nurture. And most of us are saddled with certain insecurities that make this task very difficult to complete. But the more you practice, the better at being open to the stranger you become. Practice hospitality. Because the believer who is spiritually secure within himself, within herself, sees himself as a child of God who is lovable, capable, and valuable. That's the way you should perceive yourself. Lovable, capable, valuable. Not by your own might, not by your own power, but by the spirit of the living God who dwells in you. The believer who is spiritually secure has grown beyond viewing herself as the center of the universe. She does not need to bolster her confidence by imagining herself to be greater than she really is, to be wiser than she really is. But he is content with who he is, a person that is made in the image of God, a sinner saved by grace. And it is only from that place of spiritual maturity it is only from that place of spiritual security that he, that you, that I can receive the stranger as a guest. That she sees no danger in welcoming the stranger into her life because there is space in her heart 
The space where insecurity used to dwell is now open. She can develop fruitful relationships with the stranger. Relationships that are devoid of fear, devoid of worry, of personal danger and loss. Because the child of God understands that he, she has nothing to lose. All things are yours. And you are Christ's. And Christ is God's. It is only and also from that place of personal and spiritual security that one can, verse 14, bless those who persecute you. And to bless in the sense that Paul means it here, to bless is to give honor to another person. Paul says that we are not to condemn those who injure us. We do not allow fear, we do not allow anger to breed an insecurity that, that feels the need to vindicate ourselves or to avenge ourselves. Our carnal nature wants to become defensive when someone harms us, when someone threatens us, right? Our carnal nature tries to influence us to clam up, to close our hands, to soak, circle our emotional wagons, but we are only able to remain open even in the face of assault when we are secure in Jesus Christ enough to believe that no weapon that is formed against us can prosper. And every tongue that rises up against us, God shall condemn. Because this is the heritage of the sons and daughters of God and our righteousness comes from him. Ah. Only from that place of confidence can you be open to the stranger. Only from that place of confidence in the promises of God can you bless those who seek to do you harm. And Paul tries to bolster that confidence in us in chapter 9 when he says, in all things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For Paul is convinced, and so am I, that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord, there is nothing to fear. And when these truths are embedded into your spiritual DNA, you will be able to bless those who seek to do you harm. And this spiritual, this personal security also gives us permission to appreciate our emotions, and to not hide from our own emotions. Because only then can we rejoice with those who rejoice. Only then can we weep with those who weep. You have to be in touch with your emotions to do this. We can be in touch with our emotions. We can be in touch with the emotions of others without fear of being overcome or overwhelmed by those emotions. It is fairly easy to rejoice with those who rejoice. Everyone loves a celebration. It's always pretty easy to find something to celebrate, but the weeping is a different affair. My sister passed away last year. Something in my culture, what, 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 what we do when somebody dies, you don't, call, you don't call it a funeral, you call it a celebration. You call it a going home celebration. But my sister has died. And I was sitting with my pastor, my old pastor, up in the pulpit. And he was expecting me to get up and say some words and to like 
preach some fiery sermon about how my sister has gone on to glory and everything is all right with her now and she's feeling better now. And I got up and grabbed the microphone and said, you know, today all I want to do is just cry. Is that all right? <laughs> is it possible for me to have faith and still shed some tears? Is it okay for me to be in touch with my own emotions? My sister has passed away. This is not a celebration for me. And I don't need to cover over my emotions to pretend that the truth is not what it is. I don't need to quote some scripture to make me, to, to give me distance from my own feelings. No, I'm in touch with my emotions. That's a healthy place to be. But you can only be in that place when you are secure within yourself, when you are not afraid of your own feelings. Huh. How many of us are bound within by our own emotions, not able to express ourselves, not able to laugh when laughter is in order, not able to cry when things have gone bad? Oh, my, my. When I lose my job, I don't start quoting scriptures and talking about I'm going to get another, I'm going to be better, and God's going to, no. I say, man, I lost my job, man. I love that job. Hope I didn't do anything to lose. I hope I didn't do anything to make, make them upset with me or something, man. I, God, I lost. It's all right to cry. I'll go one step further. It is healthy to cry. When you need to cry. Now, some people cry too much. But, but sometimes you need to cry. One of the greatest forms of bondage, not only in the church, but in the world, is that people are afraid of themselves. Afraid that if I start crying, I won't be able to stop it. It'll just overtake my whole life. And it's true, there's enough suffering in the world to cry yourself to death. But we can't be afraid of our own feelings. We have to be able to enjoy life, but also to lament our losses. I am in favor of lamenting. Every December, I lament my losses. Some people think that's morbid. But I have learned over time, it is good to lament my losses. Do you lament your losses? Do you ever take the time to cry? Are you confident enough that God has your back, that you can shed tears without feeling guilty and feeling like this is a sign that I don't have faith? That's not true. That's not true. The Old Testament is full of prophets of faith who lamented very often. They cried out before God very often. David, the one who has the heart of God, cried before God. Sometimes you have to just cry and let it out. Now, 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 we don't cry like those who have no hope now. When I'm crying, that doesn't mean I don't have hope. I cry because I accept the truth that life is full of ups and downs, that sometimes life is hard. There's nothing wrong with accepting that truth. There's nothing wrong in sitting in my sorrow from time to time. We can celebrate the good days and we can feel free to lament the days of pain. Our emotions should not be inhibited. We should be so secure within ourselves that we have God on our side. That we share the need to, to appear to be confident at all times. To appear to always have it all together and under control. No, sometimes life is out of control. There is nothing worse in a church than going to someone and telling them your problem only for them to turn around and tell you, you know, God's going to provide. Everything's going to work out. All things going to work together. 
I didn't need that. All I wanted somebody to do was just empathize with me just for a moment. Can, can you please just stop quoting me Bible verses and just be human? We're humans. God didn't come into the world to make us angels. He came into the world to make us perfect humans. And perfect humans are in touch with their emotions. Are you in touch with yours? Are you afraid to cry? Do you feel guilty when you mourn your losses? My intention, just like last week, was to finish that little, those couple verses there, but I can't finish today. And so we'll pick up next week at verse 16 of Romans chapter 12. The song says, I am who God says I am. There are many of us right here under the sound of my voice who have negative feelings about your own self. Lack of self-confidence. You feel like you don't measure up. Even when you do your very best, you feel like it's never enough. My question for you today comes straight from the word of God. Who are you to judge another man's servant? You are a servant of God. And you have no right to judge your own self. But let God judge you. When God judges you, God says you are lovable. You are capable. <laughs> and you're able. We should work on this in our personal lives. Because there's a place where the psychological and the spiritual cross paths. And there are a lot of children of God who love God with all their heart, but they have emotional restraints that cause them not to be able to grow effectively in the kingdom of God because of a poor perception of who they are. Paul wrote this book of Romans to remind the church at Rome of who they are in Christ. You are no different, you are no better, and you are no worse than anyone else. God loves you just like he loves everybody else. When you believe that, when you drink that truth in, only then can you have the confidence and the ability to obey what Paul is commanding them in Romans chapter 12. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you today for who you have made us to be. We thank you, Father God, that even when we were unacceptable, you accepted us. Even when you didn't love us, even when we didn't love you, you loved us the same. Father, there are many under the sound of my voice today who are struggling with poor self-perception, either thinking too much of themselves or thinking too little of themselves. I pray today, Father God, that you would give each of us your eyes and allow us to see ourselves as you see us so that we can proclaim with faith that I am who you say I am and so that we can walk in confidence and love you with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and only then can we love our neighbor, because then we truly love ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen.